Okay, if you have a Bible tonight, I hope you do. Open it up or turn it on or whatever you need to do to go to uh, Psalm 110. We'll start a new one tonight. We're only going to look at one verse simply because uh, I want to kind of have an emphasis on Christmas tonight. And uh, this one verse, was uh, it speaks about something that is very, very important. Got the wise men on there. Don't know that there were three of them, but uh, they had three gifts anyway. And they're on their way to uh, worship the Lord Jesus. You remember they stop in Jerusalem and they terrify Herod by asking uh, about the king. And um, then they go. And you notice when you uh, read that story, they don't go to the stable. They don't go with shepherds. They don't do that. This is uh, probably quite a bit later, they come to, uh, it says in the scripture, the house, not the stable, the house where the young child, not the baby, was. And um, it's also kind of a clue that um, Herod had all of the babies killed two years of age and under after he inquired when the wise men had seen the star. So uh, Jesus is probably a toddler by this particular point. The uh, wise men were not kings. I know the song says that they are, but they were not kings. They were from Persia, and they were part of a, a religion that had a priestly tribe. You were kind of born into this. They're called the Magi in the original language of the New Testament, and they had great power. Um, the Romans were particularly afraid of them, and they were afraid of the Persians and the Persian Empire, and there was always kind of trouble brewing on all of that. So for these Persians to show up and to say, where is he that is born king of the Jews would be terrifying. Are we, are we getting ready to go to war? Is there going to be a tr uh, trouble with the Persians or something like that? Uh, they were the kingmakers of that day. Very, very important people. They were astronomers slash astrologers. All of that was kind of blended together back in those days. And they had happened to notice that there was a particular star. Now, the wise men go all the way back to the Persian Empire where Daniel was. And Daniel was one of them. In fact, uh, you remember that Darius put him in charge of all of the wise men. And so no doubt when uh, Daniel was back all of those years before, he was telling them about God. He was telling them about the prophecies. He was telling them about the coming Messiah. And they held on to all of that all the way through to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the wise men, the group of the Magi, they probably were monotheistic at this point. And um, they were watching for all of this because of what they had learned so many years before. So when they see the star, and uh, I was listening to uh, John MacArthur yesterday, and uh, he's right because he agrees with what my mother-in-law said on the way home from church. What was the star? Some think it's a comet, but some think it's some unusual thing or an alignment of planets or whatever. But uh, I think it makes more sense to think of it as it was the Shekinah glory of God. And that night the shepherds had the glory of God announced to them. And the sky is filled with angels. And they're saying glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace and goodwill toward men. And uh, the same thing 
from a distance these wise men are watching and they see that and I think that's the explanation why it led them to Jerusalem they inquire of Herod and then they see the star again and it takes them and it is hovering over the place where the young child was comets don't do that stars don't do that and the distance would be too great I think it was indeed the glory of God that they saw even on that and they rejoiced with great joy when they saw it and the word star there that is uh, uh, that we find in the scripture can be translated a burning object or something like that and so it doesn't have to be a literal star but I think it uh, is the glory of God and when uh, we look in uh, Matthew 2, I'll just read this before we get to the psalm. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that would be uh, Herod the Great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now that phrase, who has been born, would have terrified uh, any of those be, uh, like uh, Herod or any of the other what is my phone doing here yeah I have a timer I don't need a timer right now do I I guess I'm done so uh, who have been born king of the Jews for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him and when Herod the king heard this it says he was troubled he was agitated and all Jerusalem with him. All kinds of questions are raising up. What, what does this mean? What, what are they doing here? Why are they here? What is happening? What do these words mean? Okay. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where, is, where the Christ was to be born. Now, that last part has always kind of... Uh, Made me question some things. Herod, this king who is not even Jewish, this king who is going to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem because he thinks they're going to be a threat to him, this king who is agitated because these kingmakers come in saying that we've seen a star announcing the, someone who has been born king of the Jews. Now, Herod was appointed king of the Jews that was his, indeed his title but the people the Jews didn't see him as such they hated him and uh, the Romans had appointed him that and that was mainly to kind of keep the peace to kind of keep the Jews from rioting or having a revolution or overthrowing anything and so these men showing up would be what are they doing here because Rome didn't want any trouble with the kingdoms of the east especially the Persians and so they show up what's going on that would be enough and then when they say we're looking for the one who is born king of the Jews now that's kind of a subtle implication unlike you okay you're the king we're talking to you we're asking you but we realize you're not really the king of the Jews you're not even a Jew and you uh, are not born king of the Jews and so Herod is agitated by all of that now as we uh, talked about Sunday morning there were uh, a lot of people that were living in that time who were expecting the Messiah to come and they're waiting for the Messiah to come and so every Jewish mama whenever she had a child 
if the uh, midwife said, it's a boy, they had the hope that this might be the one, this might be the Messiah. And so they would name it many times, just like Mary did, Jesus, Yeshua, means salvation is of the Lord in hopes that that child would be the promised Messiah. Now, the only problem is that uh, they didn't really follow their Bible on that because the Bible was very clear throughout the Old Testament with the prophecies that the Messiah could only be one person, and that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they kind of, uh, the Jews, would kind of cross their fingers and hope that these babies that were born might just possibly be the Messiah. Okay? Notice what Herod did in the verses we just read. The immediate thing he does is he goes to the religious leaders, the scholars, and then he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, does it seem strange to you that somebody who is not a Jew and not a Bible believer and not a part of that nails it as to who this baby is? The wise men didn't say, where is the Christ to be born? They said the king. Herod nails it. Where is the Christ to be born? And uh, that leads me to believe if a guy like Herod could figure all of this kind of stuff out, I think there were more people living in the days of Jesus who actually knew who he was, but they didn't want to believe it, they didn't want to accept it, and they didn't want him to be king over them. It might cost them too much, it might cause trouble, it might bring Rome down on them, or whatever the case might be, so they didn't want it. But if Herod could get the picture, the big picture of all of this, I got a feeling there were a lot of other people who also uh, got that same big picture. And so uh, Herod, what kind of a Bible believer is he? He's enough to know that this king that is born must be the Christ, and he also is enough to know the Bible must have predicted it and he also believes it enough that when the wise men don't come back and tell him, he slaughters all of the children two years of age and under in Bethlehem. Uh, he took this seriously. And so you think about this. Maybe it wasn't, uh, well, no, maybe about it. Of course, it wasn't right the way that he did this or the way he believed it. He believed it in a superstitious way. Or at least he believed that the Bible might be true enough to try to do this but he could thwart the will of God and the prophecy of Scripture by killing all of the babies or at least killing the Christ child. So his belief was not a godly belief or a right belief or a faithful belief, but he did at least believe it. And how many people living back then that should have known all of this? I mean, I'm thinking of some of the Pharisees and some of the scribes and some of the Sadducees and people like that that they read this nearly every single day. The Torah, they would read that every single day. And they would read the covenant to Abraham and the covenant later on uh, in the other books past the Torah. They would read about the covenant with David where David was promised one of his uh, descendants would be on the throne forever. And they would read further on about all of this. And why they would miss it is just amazing to me. Um, someone said one time, if the star of Bethlehem really was the glory of God, why did so few actually see it? And yet when you think about that, how often has it been that God's glory has been hidden? 
and has been something that most of the people didn't see, only those to whom it was revealed. Jesus even said at one point, he said, I thank you, Lord, in a prayer that you have hidden this from the wise and the prudent and you've revealed it to babes. And so it's not um, uh, anything out of the ordinary to think that most of the people that night that Jesus had born would miss all of this. And it is kind of interesting to think that shepherds saw it. Shepherds couldn't even testify in a Jewish court of law and yet they're the ones that are supposed to give witness to this. Nobody's going to believe the shepherds. And then the other people that see them are hundreds of miles away, back to the east in another kingdom, and they make that uh, trip to Bethlehem in order to see Jesus and to worship him. Now, the Romans would have been terrified on two fronts. Okay, I've already mentioned one. Are we going to have trouble with Persia and the kingdoms in the east? The other thing would be, what is going to happen when the Jews hear that there is someone who is born king of the Jews? And by being born the king of the Jews, we mean somebody who is actually a descendant of a king, a direct descendant of a king. And Jesus was a direct descendant of King David, and he would be the one that would inherit the throne from the human side of things. And so uh, what happens if the Jews start getting all stirred up and they want to revolt against Rome or any of those things? And Herod knows his job and even his life is on the line because if there is a Jewish revolt, and the Jews were very stubborn people and very difficult to control. They didn't just lay down and, and uh, roll over for the Romans when they came through. They were a problem all the way through this and so the thing that they were told if you're a king like uh, Herod or if you were a governor or a procurator like Pilate keep the peace is your biggest assignment and if not we'll step in and if they couldn't do it they would probably be executed so this whole thing boils down to where is the one born the king of the Jews now I don't know what most people were thinking in that day that the Messiah would be. But they did expect him to be born and they expected him to be a human being, but I don't think they really expected him to be God in human flesh. That whole idea about 100% God and 100% man being put together in one body, uh, that, was a, that was a problem for the Jews and a problem for even um, people that would attempt to follow Christ or want to follow Christ or be intrigued by him until they found out who he claimed to be, until they found out all of those other things, many of them would say too high a price and they would pull away from it. But the Pharisees were constantly kind of uh, hitting him up on this kind of thing. And uh, at one point, I know they said, well, we know who our father is, basically. What's the insinuation? You don't even know who your dad is. We know your particular story. Uh, so the genealogy of Christ and his humanity, something that we skip over and yawn over, is very, very important because it proves that he's exactly who he said he was. And you can read about it in Matthew chapter 1, and you can also read another genealogy in Luke, and uh, people look at that and they say, wait a minute, how can you have 
two different genealogies? And here's the answer. You've got your dad's genealogy and your mother's genealogy. And I believe that Matthew is clearly Joseph's genealogy, his earthly father. And then in Luke, it is giving us Mary's genealogy. And the reason that would be important is because we find that uh, as we read the genealogy and we compare it to the history in the scriptures, there was a descendant of Solomon that uh, God was so angry with him. His name was Jeconiah in the New Testament called Coniah. And God says to him, you or your family, your descendants will never set upon the throne. I'm done with all of you. Well, here's the problem. Through Joseph, Jesus is a descendant of the cursed king. So how is he going to sit on the throne if none of Jeconiah's descendants are ever going to be there? And yet it has to be a descendant of David that is on the throne. Well, here we go to Mary's genealogy. And you know what you find interesting? Mary is indeed a descendant of David. A descendant of David. And yet not a descendant of Jeconiah. Say, how can that be? Because Mary's line comes through, uh, I think it is a brother of Jeconiah and not Jeconiah himself. So through Mary, and that's where the Lord Jesus gets his humanity, his flesh and blood, his DNA and all of that. He has the bloodline of David, a direct descendant, but he bypasses the cursed king. And so either way you go, whether you look at Joseph or whether you look at Mary, what the temple people would do or anybody else, however they looked at it, this child is amazing and special because a descendant of David meets all of the prophetic requirements and even the chief priests and scribes at Herod's orders were able to say he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea in uh, the city of David, just like the angels told the shepherds. And so all of this is extremely important because the Messiah is not going to be just a ghost, a phantom, or a spirit, but going to be a human being, a man who's a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David, and yet at the same time the perfect sacrifice, which means he can't have a sin nature. And so through the virgin birth, all of that is bypassed and through Mary's bloodline, the curse of the genealogy is bypassed. And so Jesus is 100% God, so he could be the perfect sacrifice, and 100% man, so he can be nailed to the cross and bleed and shed his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, later on, when Jesus is walking on earth... Um, we think about uh, everything that is happening here and he, Jesus happens to quote the psalm we're going to look at tonight. In fact, um, you'll notice uh, I've got it on a slide here for you that uh, this is, along with Psalm 118, by far the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Look at all those scriptures that are in there where it's referenced. Matthew uh, 2244 and 2664 and it's also in Mark and it's also in Luke and it's also in Acts it's also in uh, the book of Hebrews so uh, we're going to look at this tonight 
and uh, think about it. Now, one instance where Jesus quotes it is in Matthew twenty-two forty-one. And now while the, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Okay, so a little quiz. What do you know about the Christ? And it's the same thing that the chief priests and scribes told Herod and that they told the wise men. And what does it say about him? Whose son is he? And they answer and they said to him, The son of David. Now he says, Got a riddle for you. You like riddles? Here's a riddle. How is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him the Christ, Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son or his descendant? And um, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There was always this assumption about Jesus that he was kind of a bumpkin. I mean, after all, he's from Galilee, you know, and he's from uh, uh, Nazareth in Galilee. That's an immoral, kind of a barely a Jewish place. You know, they were kind of more secular, and they had a lot of Gentile influence. And uh, there was a lot of immorality there, you know, and probably Mary had messed around with a Roman soldier, maybe prostituted herself, and now she's trying to cover it up by saying, oh, it's an angel, and God came, and this is, this is from God, and it's the Messiah. And everybody goes, yeah, right, Mary. Yeah, right. I mean, even Joseph did that at first, didn't he? Until the angel convinced him of that. And so uh, they never really had high regard for Jesus. You don't come from the right part of the country. You didn't go to the right schools. And uh, they were kind of short-sighted because they were tempted to say, and you don't really have the right pedigree. Well, actually he did. He had a pedigree, a pedigree that was far beyond anything that they had. He is royalty, and he is a descendant, of course, of Israel's great king, David. But... All they looked at and said, uh, you're the son of a peasant woman. And, you know, maybe you're the son of the village carpenter, but that's just about it. So anytime Jesus would say something that kind of trapped them or tricked them, they were always astounded at his words because they really didn't expect a bumpkin like him with his accent, with the way he dressed, where he was from, and the people he was around. He just didn't sound all that smart or all that intelligent to them. And so his question is interesting because if the Lord says to my Lord, and remember that's David speaking, so David is saying that the Lord said to my Lord, somebody superior to me, well, who in the world would be superior to David? When you uh, look at royalty and royal families, the children are always subordinate to their parents. Okay? And so uh, King Charles in England had to wait until his mother died. And until she died, <coughs> he had to address her a certain way. He had to walk a certain way with her. He had all of these rituals and things that they would do to make sure that everybody knew who was the big boss. Okay, Same way back here when we read this. 
David, if he calls somebody Lord, he's calling somebody his master, his boss. Kings don't do that. And so when Jesus says, uh, what, what, what is this about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And he said, oh, well, he's David's son. Oh, well, that's interesting. So David, and by the way, in the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says this thing that is so puzzling. Who in the world is he calling the boss here? Because we find two mentioned there. And so one of them is uh, speaking about the Messiah. So let's look at Psalm 110 now. And let's read what David said when it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing, okay? The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers, the King James says, willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth, and the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not Aaron, but Melchizedek, that guy that met with Abraham, and Abraham gave tithes to and worshipped him. I think that was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now, notice here that, the, uh, that David is tying in this psalm, whoever this person is, he is sitting at the right hand of the Lord, God himself, okay? And yet at the same time, he's ruling on earth and he even functions as a priest. Now, you didn't have in Judaism a king who was also a priest. You were one or the other. But whoever he's talking about here is going to be both. And that implies humanity. So this is a person who can be face to face with God, sitting at the right hand of God. This is Old Testament, folks. This is not New Testament stuff. This is Old Testament from David, seated with God, and yet at the same time on earth, ruling on earth, and also as a priest that can go into the temple, offer sacrifices, and of course they didn't know at the time even be the sacrifice. This is really an enigma, right? And so verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath and he shall judge among the nations and he shall fill the places with dead bodies and he shall execute the heads of many countries and he shall drink of the brook by the wayside therefore he shall lift up the head good night this is confusing and if you're looking at it through merely human eyes, you're like, what? What are we talking about here? Is this person God? Is this person a man? Is this person a king? Is this person a priest? And is this person going to rule? And notice that as he rules, he executes judgment so much so that they have to pile up the bodies. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation... You kind of go, yeah, I see where this is going and I see what's happening here. But if you don't have the book of Revelation and you're wondering what all this is about, man, this is a tangled up mess, or at least it seems to be. And that's why we always uh, tell you that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. 
There are just some things in the Old Testament that you don't get when that's all that you read. Now, it never contradicts the New Testament, and the New Testament never contradicts the Old, but it's just you've got some pieces of the puzzle that aren't quite clear. You're not sure where to put them. So the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, but the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And it's when you start putting the new and the old together. This is why you don't unhitch from the Old Testament. This is why you need the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the stories, the rituals, all of those things because they point to Christ and you find how they are perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the New Testament. So tonight we're just going to look at one verse and uh, when we look at this, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, in the Middle East, even today, you may remember back in the uh, Gulf War, whenever they would pull down statues of Saddam Hussein, the people there would take their shoes and hit the statue with the shoes. Because in the Middle East, the worst insult you can do is to put your foot or your shoe on someone because it means that you dominate them. And it means that you are also... Um, putting them down, you were disgracing them, you were insulting them with all of that. And that's the same thing here. Your enemies are going to become your footstool. You as a king are going to prop your feet up upon them. They think they're so great. They think they're powerful. They think that they rule and you're going to use them as an ottoman for your recliner, you know, type of thing. And that was something that was tremendously, tremendously... Uh, insulting for them so what is uh, David saying here now without knowing everything that we find in this psalm we just see this and it's pretty clear number one whoever this is this descendant of David he has equality with God the Father the Lord God the Father said to my Lord this descendant who is greater than me again that doesn't happen except in this case because it's Christ said unto my Lord and so that's saying equality with the Father. Whenever you um, would see a king, their throne was always elevated above everybody else. So that even if you walked up to the king in the presence of the king or were summoned there, you always knew your place. You were lower than they were. And that's why people bow before a king. And that's why they put their head down before a king. Because the king, no one, you know, is allowed without permission to look the king in the eye. And even then, it's usually at a lower position. When you can be face to face with the king, you are somebody to be reckoned with. And that's why in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the way that is written in the Greek, proston theon, it means equal with, face to face with, literally with God. Now, who could do that? Only someone who is also God. Now you may be sitting on a throne, and your queen may be able to come up, and uh, with permission and she may sit on an equal platform with you and you know that there were times when their children might come up and crawl up on their lap while they're on their throne but uh, that's all within the family nobody else was just allowed to do whatever they wanted to do and there was no equal right 
equal rights or equal justice or anything like that like we would think of. And yet this person, whoever he might be, is equal with God. The Lord said to my Lord. It's greater than David. This is bigger than all of that. And it's speaking of the fact of equality with God the Father. This would be something that the Pharisees would have a little bit of trouble with. But uh, that's what it's speaking of. It reminds us in Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he emptied himself of all of the rights, the privileges, the prerogatives that he would have as God and limited himself and became a man lived upon earth, got hungry, got tired, had to sleep, all of that kind of stuff just like we do. And uh, he did it all without sin, but he had to live here on this earth. He was still God, and he was still equal with God, but he laid aside and emptied himself of all of the privileges that he would have had in that situation. Well, that's enough to get you stoned or to get you uh, crucified just in that right there. Anybody who claims to be equal with God. And you remember that was a charge against him. This man makes himself to be equal with God. And they couldn't handle it. Because they didn't know their Bible. They didn't know their own scriptures. Because that's what David was speaking of here. Now notice here secondly. Whatever it is that we know about this. We see the superiority, the superiority of God the Son. And he said to my Lord, he said, sit. You don't ever do that as we've said before. So when Jesus dies, is buried, raised from the dead, ascends to God the Father, when he comes into the throne room, the Father on the throne says, sit. Come on up here and sit. And sit at uh, my right hand. That is a big, big deal if you have a monarchy. That's a big deal. It means this one is equal to this one. And that's what they couldn't understand. And that's why it was such a, a riddle to them. And how does it uh, that David said to him, you're my Lord and yet you're my son? How can you be my Lord, my master, and my son? That's backwards. It doesn't work that way. And that's what threw them so much. And so they decided not to uh, ask him any more questions about this. So David, the ancestor, and yet David is the inferior. That is so out of order, but it is uh, certainly solved through Jesus. Okay? And um, again, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, think about this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so David here for us, hundreds of years before Christ was ever born, thousands of years before us, and he records the Lord's decree, God's decree, about the triumph and the superiority and the sufficiency of the Lord. No wonder it says in Colossians that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. God has exalted him above everything else. And so David records this decree, establishing his anointed as the king over all, 
in spite of the opposition of man. Number three, we also find something else here that seems really strange and out of order, and yet it's the plan of God. Jesus and God the Father are co-sovereigns. They are ruling together on this. Now, I have uh, been brought up with the idea that the Trinity is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we usually talk about that and say, well, God did this, and Jesus did this, and the Holy Spirit did this. I've tried to change my phrasing on that because all three of them are God. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I don't like giving, especially little children, the idea that, well, there's God and he's kind of the boss. And then there's Jesus, he's second string God. And then the Holy Spirit, and he's third string, you know. And so whenever God the Father and Jesus can't do something, they call the Holy Spirit off of the bench and he comes into the game. That, that's horrible theology and horrible thinking. We find that they are all three co-equal in their nature and their attribute. Now I know that that is hard to understand. But like one of the early church fathers said. If you try to explain it you'll lose your mind. If you try to deny it you lose your soul. This is the way the Bible presents them. And even back then in Psalm 110. We get a glimpse of the Trinity. We don't get all three uh, members of the Trinity. But we've got the Father and the Son. And we find them being co-equal in their nature and their attributes. And even in their sovereignty. They're ruling on a throne. Sit at my right hand. The right hand in the Bible. Sorry for those of you who are lefties like my wife. But the right hand is seen as the, pow as the hand of dominance. The hand of strength. And because of that, for a king to ask you to be at his right hand, even to stand at his right hand, it meant that that was the place of honor. That was a place where you were being exalted to come up and be with the king. And so that's exactly what the Lord says. Sit at my right hand. And so the right hand is the favored position of power and honor and equality. Jesus said something in John 5, 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Did you know that? Did you realize that? All of these people that go around and say, Oh, I just take the words of Jesus out of the Bible. None of the other stuff, just the words in red, because Jesus is loving and kind, and He doesn't judge. You ever heard anybody say that or intimate that? Or they tell you if you say something is wrong or sinful. Well you're not supposed to judge. You need to be like Jesus. For the Father judges no one. But is given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son. Just as they honor the Father. See the equality there? Whoever does not honor the Son. Does not honor the Father who sent him. You know, uh, I've heard some people, and I'm sure they were well-meaning, and they've talked about somebody, uh, most recently I heard it about a Jewish person. Well, they believe almost everything we do except about Jesus. Is that okay? Is that acceptable? The Bible says there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus just told us here, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. 
And when you honor the Father, that necessarily means you honor the Son. They're a package deal, in other words. You can't have one without the other. So somebody comes up and they say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Father or the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, you missed it. You've got the wrong God. You've created God in your own image, and it's wrong. And if somebody else comes up and they say, well, I believe in God the Father, but I don't buy the stuff about Jesus, well, then I'm sorry. With all the love in my heart, you've missed it, and you are worshiping the wrong God. And this is the reason why... We can't just simply say, well, the Jews worship God just like we do because they don't. All worship comes through the Son, and Jesus made it clear you cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. And this is why when I talked to a Muslim one time, and I asked the question, is G he was pointing out all of the similarities and all the things we believe and using the generic God on everything. And I said, well, we have just one problem. Is Jesus God? And he said, no. And he wouldn't speak to me anymore about that after that because that is the point where we divide from everybody else. Jesus is God. And God the Father and God the Son are co-equal in their nature and their attributes and to honor one is to honor the other and they rule and they reign as co-sovereigns and all of the judgment has been relinquished into the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a place of power, isn't it? And then number four, notice the assurance of victory. He didn't say, hopefully I can make your enemies your footstool. He didn't say, if by some chance I can make your enemies your footstool. He says, you sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. And one thing is very clear in the scripture. Jesus has already triumphed over all of his foes and all of his enemies. It's just a matter of time until he announces it and until he actually executes that upon all of them and of course as we read through psalm 110 that's going to be a tremendous show of power and it's going to be very bloody and very powerful and we can find that in the new testament as well and uh, that's what is happening so what is jesus waiting on before he comes back he's waiting there seated at the right hand of god the father and while he is there at the right hand of god the father according to the book of first john he is defending you against the accusations of the enemy. And he is also, according to the book of Hebrews, he is praying for you. Even right now, the Lord Jesus is praying for us. And I wonder what he's praying. And I got a feeling his prayer is probably different than our prayers. And there are those times when we say, Oh Lord, it would glorify you so much if you would do this and this and give me this and this. And that's about the time the Lord Jesus goes, uh, No, let me amend that. And then he puts it the way that it needs to be so that it's acceptable to the Father and it's always uh, answered the right way according to the will of God because Jesus always prays according to the will of God, not like we do. And so all of this is happening and Jesus is doing all this and he's happy to do all this. He's receiving souls that leave earth, that are believers, into his presence. He's got the mansions prepared for him, the streets of gold, everything is ready for them. But uh, he's not ready for all of the big stuff that he has promised. Why? Because his enemies have not been put under his feet yet. But there is a day. And there's a day coming 
when he is going to get up off of the throne and come back to earth. And there is the one part where he takes all of us out. And then there is another part where he comes back and his feet are uh, touched down on the Mount of Olives. And he takes over the earth and he rules and he reigns. And all who oppose him are done away with. And uh, that is going to come. And it's not a matter of chance. It's not a hope so, think so, maybe so. Uh, we're crossing our fingers that that's going to happen. It's going to happen. And Jesus is there and he's not going to return until it's time for that to happen. And uh, so we say like the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus because I'd like to see that day when Jesus truly is exalted. And can you imagine, as wonderful as earth and life is right now, can you imagine what it will be like when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne of his father David? So, we go back and we think about what the wise men said. Who is he that is born the king of the Jews? And yet that idea of being born the king of the Jews, well, that's okay if you're going to have an entitlement and a dynasty and all of that that we think of. But how in the world does that same person ever get to be? He sits on the throne of his father, David. We get that. And yet David calls him Lord. How does that happen? And this one he calls Lord is actually seated by God the Father with a promise, sit here at my right hand equal with me until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's the kind of thing that the rabbis would go over and over and over. How does this fit? How does this work? And yet we find that it works so beautifully when you find God in human flesh where he is the son of God and he's also the son of David and you see the way all of it is so beautifully put together. He comes first to be the sacrifice and then he comes secondly to be the conquering king and all of this stuff starts fitting together all of the pieces of the puzzle so that we look at it and we go, aha, that's how it is. But apart from the Holy Spirit, you'll never get it. You'll never put it all together. And this is not something that any human being could make it up. I could never make this stuff up, could you? All of us together couldn't make this up. That's because it doesn't come from us and it doesn't come from earth. It comes from heaven, from the eternal plan of the Father. So much so that John in the book of Revelation looked and he saw Christ as one who was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, here's the deal. If it's in the mind of God, it is as good as done. If it's in the mind of God, it's not going to make human sense. We're going to be puzzled like the Pharisees were. How? What? what? Uh, this does, there's no way. Keep your mouth shut. Don't ask him anything else, right? But when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you through the Word of God and you begin to put it all together, all of a sudden you say, Aha! Maybe a Eureka! I found it! Here it is. It's been revealed. This all works when you have the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was born King of the Jews and one day will be the conquering King, but as of now, sits at the right hand of God the Father and when David got to heaven, David bowed before his descendant and called him Lord because he indeed is 
Lord. Amen? So think about that as you go through this Christmas season. All of this kind of stuff. No wonder the world doesn't get it. Santa Claus is a whole lot easier to figure out and believe in than this is. Right? Until the Holy Spirit makes it real and true in your life. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we've got so much more than an earthly king who is here today and gone tomorrow. We've got so much more than just kind of a, an ongoing intergenerational dynasty of kings to where the one on the throne now is related to the one that was previously here, but someday will be gone and there'll be another one to take his place. We serve a king who will never be deposed. We serve a king who will never die. We serve a king who will never be uh, thrown out of his kingdom. We have a king who will never be conquered. And we thank you that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That baby born in Bethlehem, that baby that was a descendant of King David, and yet at the same time a baby who was greater than King David, that King David bowed before him and called him Lord, as we see in this prophetic psalm. We want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're not inferior to God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, but all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rule and reign and function and uh, with a Godhead three in one. We don't understand that, but we know that's what the Bible teaches and we believe it and we receive it as truth. And we thank you, Lord that uh, as we think about all of these things, we don't have to settle for something like Santa Claus. We've got something far greater as we look at our wonderful God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. And thank you for the fact that He died, was buried, is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father. But oh, it's not over yet. One of these days, Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return and to see you as the conquering king of this rebellious, treasonous world that you have created. And thank you for revealing the truth about Jesus to unworthy sinners like us. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.